One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. France, like many European countries, were once the colonizing force in the Muslim world. And like many of these countries, colonialism was sold as a benevolent project, looking to civilize the savages. France's history is at times brutal, but the French also had a strong commitment to spreading so-called enlightenment values to the East. In the process, it sought to bring the good message of French liberalism to the Muslim Orient. The French obsession remains to today, with the most recent proposals to ban the hijab for under 18-year-olds and Macron's so-called anti-separatism bill looking to further marginalise an already impoverished Muslim community. But it's France in Algeria that is the subject of today's show. Farhat Amin speaks to Zara Chowdhury, founder and editor-in-chief of Sacred Footsteps, Zara talks about her recent article unveiling the Algerian French colonial photography, which looks at the central obsession of French colonialism to unveil Muslim women. There are indeed many parallels to today. Her article can be found in the show notes. As always, please subscribe to this podcast and we ask you to kindly write a review on Apple Podcasts so to help us with Apple rankings. We are also fundraising so that we can bring this podcast to a wider audience. Again, the link is in the show notes. Assalamu alaikum, Zara. Welcome to the podcast. Wa alaikum, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Alhamdulillah. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Um, so... Before we begin speaking about the article, could, for, you know, for some of my listeners, they may not have heard of Sacred Footsteps before. So what made you begin, um, you know, and start this website? Um, so initially, it was just the fact that there were not that many good resources online focused on Muslim travellers, um, because we started this about six or seven years ago now. So at that time, especially, um, I was travelling a lot. And I kind of experienced that firsthand. Um, additionally, there was very little reliable, up-to-date information about spiritual or religious sites, such as Maghams. 
Um, and so if you wanted to visit places like that, you really had to know someone who'd already been, who could tell you where to go and, you know, et cetera. Um, and I guess more than that, I felt that there needed to be more focus on highlighting different aspects of Muslim culture and history. Um, so for instance, I visited Vietnam and mm. there's a Muslim community there um, who surprisingly have quite a long history. But at that time, there was nowhere you can go online and kind of do any kind of research or find out anything about them. Um, and so Sacred Footsteps kind of really came from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I, d- I didn't know we had, you know, a community of Muslims in Vietnam. It does, you're right, it makes me think when I went to, when we wanted to visit the Alhambra in Spain, when I would then went online, it was mainly non-Muslim documentaries and historians who we yeah. were then watching and reading. And that's who we were getting our information from. So you're you're definitely right about historical, you know, um, websites you can go that would, you know, show you what the Muslim perspective is. And um, yeah, exactly. And and so because so for example, I know it's just side point. There was something I saw on your website by Ertugol. So we've got an article about how to visit his tomb, mm-hmm. um, and also other people, other. Um, I was going to say characters, but of course they're based on real people. Um, yeah, so we have an article about how to how to visit his um, resting place, written by somebody called Hamza Sheikh, who mm-hmm. visited all those sites himself. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of the time, many of the kind of most famous, you know, Islamic sites, the literature written on them is often by um, either by non-Muslims or it's kind of secular sources, right? But that's changed a lot, I would say, in the last like five years. There are more publications, more platforms kind of dedicated to this kind of thing. But for us, the focus is really on the stories that are often overlooked. Mm-hmm. So, for example, within West Africa, there's a real um, a real tradition of scholarship that goes back a thousand years. Um, and so we work with Mustafa Briggs, who's one of our writers, and he his focus is on, you know, highlighting that tradition specifically. Um, and then we have others who kind of focus on other areas. But yeah, for us, it's really about highlighting those things that we as Muslims also overlook for whatever reason, because we kind of tend to concentrate on the cultures that we're from ourselves. Mm. Um, and so we also have a podcast as well. So that's one of the things we Oh, excellent. What's the, what's the name of the podcast? N- not the most imaginative name, <laughs> Sacred Footsteps, the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so if you Google that, it should come up. Okay, alhamdulillah, because it is, I would, I, I'd, I, I spent a little bit of time on the website and I thought I have to come back and look at this properly because there is a lot of stuff um, that you don't normally see. Like there's, some, there's a nice article about Jamaica, it's, uh, Muslims in Jamaica, and it really is, it's, it's very multicultural. It's and multicultural and also, you know, the images um, on the site and on, on your Instagram page, they're very positive images of Muslims, just in and their normal environment. It's, and that's what was really nice as well, just seeing all the different types and the way of Muslims we are and, you know, globally. But it was all very positive. That's the thing that I really liked yeah. about it. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because it we really focus on um, challenging a lot of the kind of dominant stereotypes. So a lot of our work focuses on challenging Orientalism in particular, because the way Muslims are portrayed even today has its roots in Orientalism itself. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, for us, that's a very deliberate decision. Like the the images we use, everything like that, um, we put a lot of thought into those kind mm-hmm. of things. Well, th- that would actually be the next thing I'd like to ask you. That you know, if if any of our, um, our listeners, if they don't know what orient- orientalism is, could you please explain that? Okay, so orientalism was a term coined by Edward Said. Um, initially, the term was used purely. Um, so academics would refer to themselves as Orientalists. It was just people who, whose um, academic output kind of focused on the Muslim world or Eastern cultures, um, because there was this kind of, I suppose, is binary thinking that um, the world is East and West. And so people who focused on Eastern cultures and history in their work refer to themselves as Orientalists. Um, and then Edward Said wrote this book, Orientalism, in the 70s. Mm. Um, and the book is really about kind of you know, exposing the kind of representations of Eastern people as inferior, which has kind of run through academia and literature for centuries. Um, And he kind of goes into the history of that and the fact that um, Eastern people were being represented as exotic um, and as the great other, in inverted commas, and used as kind of a, their definition was always put in juxtaposition with with the definition of who the West is and who Europe in particular is. And so where Europe is superior and enlightened, mm-hmm. um, the East is backward and uneducated and uncivilized and in need of civilizing. And those kind of that kind of thinking fed into colonialism, too, because it helped justify the colonial project. Mm-hmm. I know I read that book maybe 20 years ago, and I think I need to read it again. Um, the one thing I do remember from that, and it's interesting, he wasn't Muslim, he was Christian. Well, so he his focus was mainly on literature, kind of fantasy element. A lot of that came from Orientalist paintings. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. So what we're going to talk about um, later on, will kind of tie in with that, too. But um, a lot of the paintings kind of focused on the, the harem, what they imagined the harem would look like let's mm-hmm. say. Um, and it was this kind of this fantasy of women who are sexually available, who are completely passive and who are there purely for the pleasure of the spectator who was always a male. Mm-hmm. So th- so actually, that, yeah, that does bring us now on to the, the article that you wrote. What made you want to, what, why were you interested in, in writing um, about the unveiling of, um, you know, the women of Algeria? French colonial photography. Um, so as I kind of mentioned, we focus a lot on cha- challenging Orientalism. So one of the areas we've really worked on is photography. Um, and so I've written about colonial representations of African and Asian people before and how um, those images were used to justify colonialism and also racism too. And so this was kind of a natural progression from that because in many ways, the images that were taken in Algeria Um, and other parts of North Africa too, it wasn't just Algeria, but they're really a very extreme example of how those representations were very deliberately constructed. And so if people go onto the website, they can find the article there and see some of these images, but they were all staged because like I said, photographers would use these representations really, they were kind of an extension of the regime in the sense that they were hired by the colonial regimes Mm-hmm. And to create these images with, that were then distributed within Europe and aimed at kind of, they would either reinforce existing stereotypes or they were used for propaganda purposes in, t- in terms of justifying the colonial project. Mm-hmm. And so when photographers went to Algeria, it was difficult for them to take pictures of women because they were obviously covered from head to toe um, and they didn't have access to private spaces either. So they had no access to Algerian homes. 
And so to get past that, what they did is that they hired women from the margins of society. Um, and so they were either in, living in poverty or they were prostitutes, etc. cetera. Um, mm-hmm. They hired them, they, they put, put them in studios, they dressed them up however they wanted to. And they took these images, which you could refer to as harem photos, because that's kind of what they were portraying. The paintings that I mentioned earlier, these images were almost an exact recreation of those paintings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you show that on the website. Um, so you, you mentioned that they wanted to reinforce stereotypes that existed. What were those stereotypes of um, Muslim women at that time? Um, so at that time, the only visual reference they had for Muslim women were these paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, the paintings came from the literature and the, the photos came from the paintings kind of in turn. And so, yeah, for, so at that time, that's, that's really the only representation they had was of these um, often topless women lying in, you know, in reclining positions on top of cushions, etc. So, yeah, so these photos really were the, the first kind of visual, the first photographic representation, let's say, of Muslim women. And mm-hmm. the fact that they were photos in and of itself meant that they were received as facts. So yes. no one would have looked at these images and thought, oh, this is the photographer's artistic representation of women. No, they would have looked at them and taken them as fact. Yeah, now that, that's it. And that's the, um, and like you said, these were, so France colonized Algeria. So it, it was occupied. And and then what happened was that then you then had an, a revolution taking place where the people of Algeria were trying to remove them. So, and they, they didn't want to be occupied, obviously. But then they, how would you say then that these photos, because uh, in the article you mentioned that they distribute these photos as postcards in France, mm-hmm. which is, uh, when I was reading, I just found that um, unbelievable that, because um, these, these images are basically pornographic and they had no problem distributing this and saying, this is what the women of Algeria look like. This is who they are. And you can, it just makes you think quite, I was dumbfounded really when I, when I was reading the article that this is, because you know that, that, you know, it depends actually, to be honest, how much time you've had to read history. But um, when you hear things like this, like when you were doing your research, were you quite surprised by what you were reading and finding out? Well, so I, I, I'd known about a lot of this for a long time. And so it wasn't a huge shock, mm-hmm. but just seeing those images, I mean, I've been writing this article for months. It really took me a long time just to put it together because it's not the nicest subject to read about. They're mm. not nice images to look at. And so you kind of feel that, I suppose. And although I wasn't shocked, you still kind of feel the the outrage and the anger and all those other emotions yeah. that kind of come with it. Um, just to put things into context, the images in my article are all taken from um, the work of Malika Lula, who was an Algerian writer and literary critic. Um, and so he, being an Algerian himself, he collected these postcards and analysed them from the perspective of an Algerian, uh, really to show what the way he felt about them, basically, as an Algerian, because he, he was never the intended t- um, spectator of these photos, you have to remember. They were never intended for an Algerian audience. They mm-hmm. were intended for a European audience specifically. Um, and so these photos were taken between 1900 and 1930. The French actually occupied Algeria for 132 years. Mm. And that period was really marked by a lot of violence. It was a very, very brutal 
occupation. And the War of Independence finally brought that period to an end in 1962. But during that time, the French really kind of picked on the veil. They really chose the veil as something to target. Okay, so during this period, um, because it was really marked by violence, because the, the French occupied Algeria for 100, 162 years. And during that time, there was a resistance movement that tried to fight against the French. And it was very brutally, um, you know, that resistance was brutally fought against by the French. So the veil was really picked on by the French very early on. The repercussions for the Algerian people, you know, have continued into the modern day. But very early on, the French, the French really kind of chose the veil as something to target. So according to Franz Fanon, who was, um, who was a writer and a thinker, the veil was seen as a symbol of the Algerian woman. And so the French very quickly and very deliberately chose to focus um, on associating unveiling with liberation from oppression as though women were being oppressed by the veil. And so when you know that, um, and then you look at these photos, you kind of see them in a whole different light because there really was this ideological agenda going on behind it. So it wasn't only about, um, you know, like satisfying the male European gaze by, you know, unveiling all these women. There was a real kind of a very political, a very ideological campaign also behind that directly related to colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, the, 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 this whole unveiling, they had a, you're right, when I was reading about the French occupation of Algeria, they had a policy of unveiling, for, you know, sometimes forcibly unveiling Muslim women. And they now what's interesting, they were very proud. They've never apologized for the French government or, you know, even after independence, they never apologized for, you know, for the way they behaved in Algeria, did they? Mm. No, the, the French are actually very well known for not acknowledging past crimes. So not only in relation to Algeria, in relation to other uh, other colonized countries as well. So, yeah, no, as far as I know, they've never apologized. Because hmm. one estimate of the number of Muslims in Algeria that died was 700,000. And that and that's like a, um, a low estimate that was, you know, given like a middle ground between what France said and what, you know, often depends what the Algerian government said. But, you know, 700,000 Muslims were killed. And um, no apology, you know, I remember reading about that there's um, some skulls are kept in that have not been buried, the resistance fighters, you know, and um, I would really um, encourage everyone to do a bit of research about this, because, because I think that this is what I really like about, you know, your whole website and, and this article in particular, that it, you're showing us our history, a history that we will never be shown or taught in schools, whether in the UK or France, you know, governments don't want to talk about their colonial past in honest terms. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's really, really important for us to understand the situation we kind of find ourselves in today. We really need to understand what's happened before before us. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so although colonialism has ended, um, it still exists in other forms. And to really kind of understand that, you need to know your history. Yeah. And from Muslim sources, I think that's the thing that um, it's good to read. You know, you know, they, the famous saying goes, history is written by the victors. And that will be, we will get one version of history from, you know, our schooling. But 
when we school ourselves and it's and again alhamdulillah i'm so happy that your website exists you know sacred footstep that this is something we should be doing because then we don't feel like our you know our identity started since you know when our parents came here as immigrants um from the muslim world now we have a much richer history but also what interference what was done to our identity in muslim countries and even you know when we look at our countries and we think oh it's such a, you know it's a bit of a mess and there's problems it's things like this happened in our countries that changed our thinking so for example i remember you you mentioned that some some algerian women have contacted you and what did they say about your article yeah so i had a few women message me some were saying that they just were not aware of what had happened and so it made them understand what's going on today having read the article which I thought was really interesting because one of the women told me that this isn't common knowledge even within Algeria which I found quite surprising I I would have I I assumed that people you know were kind of aware of what had happened but yeah um, like you said history is written by the victors and yeah it's really important to kind of understand these alternative I don't want to call them alternative mm, histories. Yeah, you're it makes right. It sound it's, like they're not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, you, and there's there are a lot of people doing this kind of work. Um, we're not the only ones, but um, yeah, and I think it, things are getting better. I think people are are becoming more aware as well. Um, but I just want to mention that in terms of photography, because that was the focus of my article specifically. I think it's really important because we obviously live in a an extremely intensely visual world. Um, and social media has obviously exacerbated that. And I don't think that's going to ever change now. But we should really question sometimes, you know, when we look at images, especially taken by, you know, famous photographers with huge followings and that are kind of celebrated by institutions like National Geographic. We mm. should really question how those images are framed and what they're saying about the people that are in them. Because often what you'll find is that the tropes that, you know, are repeated over and over again and have become the standard for what is considered quote-unquote good photography, often their roots lie very much in colonial photography and very Orientalist trope. And so we should always be questioning that because I think that when you see things so often, you just become used to them and you become desensitized and you don't necessarily realize there's a problem. However, these tropes are really perpetuating the, the same kind of Orientalist narrative and repeating the same stereotypes about quote unquote eastern people for want of a better term Mm -hmm. Um, and we have a very good article on our website written by one of our writers Zarar um, and it's called creating the native and he Mm. talks about how what tropes are used in photography and what they're actually saying about those people and how those things are still continuing and photographers like Steve McCurry are instrumental in that and it was that um and I and the, yeah and he wrote a really interesting I don't know whether he's written it for your website as well about again he the, the way he writes is very like again like you said certain stereotypes of Muslims is conveyed through his book yeah but, yeah but you're right through the imagery in particular so when so what we can clearly see and alhamdulillah your article really illustrates that is that the French definitely felt they were superior to the women and and the men of Algeria, the Muslims of Algeria, and it's so and it's um and it's you know having the audacity and feeling so superior that we can do this to women and get away with it and who's going to stop us? And but this also then connected that was imposing their liberal values onto the Muslim women because they were going to civilize them. Um, mm. 
And it's interesting that even in, now in 2021, although you can't go and physically occupy Muslim countries, you know, um, as colonizers, you know, but it's, that's not possible. But what we can see is like, is for example, the French government is continuing that policy and that thinking that they want to unveil and ban the hijab, you know, so they've banned it in schools and in universities. And it, you, you know, when, when I was reading about your article, it made me think of what's happening now. Do, do you, do you see a, a comparison there? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because the association of the veil as oppressive um, and unveiling as liberation that persists, you know, throughout Europe today, but sp- especially in France. So yeah, and all of the roots of that kind of go back to this period. Um, so yeah, very much so. Mm. So uh, yeah, so Alhamdulillah, um, for for coming on and um, t- t- telling us about this. What are you What are you writing at the moment? Is there Are you working on another article at the moment? I, I am. Yeah. So this. This article was actually supposed to be a different one, <laughs> this Algeria one, but it had gotten so long, I ended up dividing it into half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm writing an article about how these certain aesthetics are kind of repeated constantly. And so this harem imagery was also repeated in Turkey um, in, within the Ottoman Empire. Um, oh. But it's really interesting because the Sultan at the time, he, could, he saw the harm in obviously portraying women in this way, Muslim women. And he actually banned um, Ottoman photographers from, uh, from from portraying Muslim women in this way. But what ended up happening was those same um, photographers who were Muslim, they used minorities within the, within the empire and portrayed mm. them in this way instead. And so although they didn't exploit Muslim women in this way, they ended up exploiting other women. Um, oh. you know non-muslim women which obviously is not a good thing mm-hmm. um, and so that article is kind of looking at how power kind of plays a role because you know within that situation you know, the ottoman muslims were in power but they ended up oppressing a minority in the same way mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's just kind of exploring how these aesthetics are repeated and how power also plays its role in that Mm-hmm. I think I can't wait to read that one, inshallah. Um, so, um, so um, the website is sacredfootsteps.org. You know, I can't recommend it highly, you know, enough, inshallah. Um, so definitely check it out. And I'd love to have you on again once you've once you've finished that article, inshallah. We, we must speak again. Inshallah, yeah. No, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.